Hello there. Welcome to uh, the story of the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament story, um, the scriptures, and and learning about who our God is through these these uh, narrations of the events that happened in the Old Testament. So thank you for joining us. This is week um, number 19 for the week of May 7th through 13th. Um, we are in Numbers chapter 34, wrapping up the book of Numbers, turn, turning now into the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then we're also reading Psalms 91 through 95. So Numbers 34 through Deuteronomy 4. Here we have the uh, last few chapters of the book of Numbers. Um, we see here, what do we have here? We've got, you know, some basically kind of some administrative things. We also have the cities of refuge talked about, um, marriage of female heirs before then turning to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, so to speak. It is a, um, it's kind of like the working man's um uh, book because it's very succinct. It's it's a helpful overview of all that the Lord revealed and what Old Testament religion should look like, and so that's what Deuteronomy is, and that's where we're going to be heading in um, next this this week. So um, let's let's walk through some of these passages of Scripture and see what we can learn from them. Because like we pointed out here in Numbers chapter 35, one of the things we, we see here is they, they divide up the land and then eventually they establish these cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. We read this in chapter 35 of Numbers verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer may, who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall be, that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So these were places to run to for safety, for security. Um, and as such, they pointed us forward ultimately to Jesus Christ and to the kind of God that we have. This is a, an article here I'm going to read called A Refuge for the Guilty Soul. It's by Nick Batsig. He writes this, one of the most wonderful Old Testament types of Jesus and his saving work is found in the account of the cities of refuge mentioned in Numbers 35 and Joshua 20. The cities of refuge were appointed by God for the person who was guilty of manslaughter. Whenever someone accidentally killed another, he could flee for refuge to the place of God's appointed safety. If he left the city, he would be killed by the avenger of blood, the goel or kinsman redeemer. The one who fled to the city for refuge had to remain there until the death of the high priest. Once the high priest died, the one who fled for refuge was set free. When we come to Numbers 35 and Joshua 20, a number of interpretive challenges arise. Intermixed with the other details about the cities of refuge is a clear word about the guilt and punishment of one who intentionally murdered another. The one who intentionally murdered another was to suffer the punishment of the death penalty. This is on account of the fact that God is made in the or that man is made in the image of God. To kill another image bearer is to raise an affront to God himself. 
The distinction in this passage between one who murdered an image bearer and one who accidentally killed an image bearer raises a challenge. It might, on a cursory reading, seem as though God was teaching that those who commit unintentional sin are not deserving of avenging justice, but that those who have sinned with evil intent are the objects of avenging justice. However, close consideration of the details of these passages paint quite a different picture. Consider the following. God gave the Levites 48 cities and the surrounding pasture, since they did not receive an inheritance with the other tribes. This was an undeserved grace of God. The Levites descended from Levi, who, together with his brother Simeon, had slaughtered the Shechem, Hamor, and the men of the city for what they had done to their, to their sister Dinah. Instead of giving the Levites what they deserved, they received the bountiful mercy and grace of God. God set them apart to mediate between himself and his people. This was the highest privilege for someone in the covenant community. In addition, the Levites were not to inherit any of the land together with the other tribes because the Lord would be their inheritance. Ian Duguid rightly notes, getting the opposite of what you deserve, or grace, is the central point of Numbers 35. Out of those 48 Levitical cities, God set apart six to be cities of refuge for someone who killed someone accidentally. Three of these cities were on the east of the Jordan and three on the west of the Jordan. This would be a place to shield the person who had shed blood from the avenging justice of the avenger of blood. The severity of the justice that God delegated to the avenger of blood is due to the fact that whoever sheds man's blood deserves to have his blood shed by man. Since man is the image of God, shedding man's blood, whether intentionally or unintentionally, requires a just penalty, namely death. This means that the one who murdered someone and the person who accidentally killed someone deserved the same punishment. At the end of Numbers 35, the Lord tells Moses that the blood shed blood pollutes the land. God could not dwell in an unclean place with his people. A sentence of justice had to be executed in response to the shedding of blood. While Numbers 35 teaches a principle of justice, God in his mercy also establishes his mercy in his provision of refuge cities. These were cities of mercy, depicting the mercy that sinners find in Christ. Each of the cities of refuge were led by priests who functioned as elders. They were the ruling elders of each of these cities, representatives of the people within the city. The person who fled to a city of refuge had to remain in the city until the death of the high priest. This was a principle of substitution that is meant to teach us about the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sinners. Jesus is the city of refuge for sinners. All who flee to him for safety from the guilt of their sin find rest for their souls and safety from the judgment of God. Regarding Christ and the cities of refuge, John Owen drew together the teaching of the Old Testament and the language of Hebrews 6.19 when he wrote, Thus a poor sinner, finding himself in a condition of guilt, surprised with a sense of it, seeing death and destruction ready to seize upon him, flies with all his strength to the bosom of the Lord Jesus, the only city of refuge from the avenging justice of God and curse of the law. Now this flying to the bosom of Christ, the hope set before us for relief and safety, is believing. It is here called flying by the Holy Ghost to express the nature of it to the spiritual sense of believers. What now? Doth he declare himself to be affected with their flying for refuge, that is, their believing? Why, he hath taken all means possible to show himself abundantly willing to receive them. He hath engaged his word and promise that they may not in the least doubt or stagger, but know that he is ready to receive them and give them strong consolation.
And what is this consolation? Whence may it appear to arise? Whence did consolation arise to him who, having slain a man at unawares, should fly to a city of refuge? Must it not be from hence? The gates of the city would certainly be open to him, that he must that he should find protection there, and be safeguarded from the revenger. Whence, then, must be our strong consolation, if we thus fly for refuge by believing? Must it not be from hence that God is freely ready to receive us, that he will in no wise shut us out, but that we shall be welcome to him, and with the more speed we come, the more welcome we shall be? This he convinces us of, by the engagement of his word and oath to that purpose, and what farther testimony would we have that our believing is acceptable to him? Similarly, Matthew Henry set out seven ways in which the arrangements bound up in the cities of refuge pointed to the spiritual relationship believers sustained to Christ. He wrote, Here is a great deal of good gospel couched under the type and figure of the cities of refuge. And to them the apostle seems to allude when he speaks of our fleeing for refuge to the hope set before us and being found in Christ. One, there were several cities of refuge, and they were so appointed in several parts of the country that the manslayer, wherever he dwelt in the land of Israel, might in half a day reach one of one or other of them. So, though there is but one Christ appointed for our refuge, yet wherever we are, he is a refuge at hand, a very present help, for the word is nigh us, and Christ in the word. Secondly, the manslayer was safe in any of these cities. So in Christ, believers that flee to him and rest in him are protected from the wrath of God and the curse of the law. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Who shall condemn those that are thus sheltered? Thirdly, they were all Levite cities. It was a kindness to the poor prisoner that though he might not go up to the place where the ark was, yet he was in the midst of the Levites, who would teach him the good knowledge of the Lord and instruct him how to improve the providence he was now under. It might also be expected that the Levites would comfort and encourage him and bid him welcome. So it is the work of gospel ministers to bid poor sinners welcome to Christ and to assist and counsel those that through grace are in him. Fourthly, even strangers and sojourners, though they were not native Israelites, might take the benefit of these cities of refuge. So in Christ Jesus, no difference in hath been made between Greek and Jew. Even the sons of the stranger that by faith flee to Christ shall be safe in him. Fifthly, even the suburbs or borders of the city were a sufficient security to the offender. So there is virtue even in the hem of Christ's garment for the healing and saving of poor sinners. If we cannot reach to a full assurance, we may comfort ourselves in a good hope through grace. Sixthly, the protection which the manslayer found in the city of refuge was not owing to the strength of its walls or gates or bars, but purely to the divine appointment. So it is the word of the gospel that gives souls safety in Christ. For him hath God the Father sealed. Seventhly, if the offender was ever caught struggling out of the borders of the city, of, ref, of his city of refuge, or stealing home to his house again, he lost the benefit of his protection and lay exposed to the avenger of blood. So those that are in Christ must abide in Christ, for it is at their peril if they forsake him and wander from him. Drawing back is to perdition. When we consider the greatness of our sin, including the times we have harbored, murder, harbored murderous anger toward a brother or sister, we must flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the refuge for the guilty souls of sinners. When we look upon him dying on the cross, we realize that he is the great high priest who died to set us free. He shields and protects his people from the righteous execution of the wrath of God against us for their sin. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. And as such, he stands ready to render to each one according to his deeds. 
However, he is also the high priest who dies in the place of his people. He sheds his own blood to remove the pollution of our hearts so that God can dwell in the hearts of his people. What a glorious truth. Jesus graciously gives his people rest for their burdened souls. As we see the fullness of God's grace and mercy in Christ, we can confidently sing, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of troubles roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Well, that is a picture, a wonderful picture to us, isn't it? Um, Of the cities of refuge where we find refuge for our souls in Jesus Christ. Well, now we turn our attention to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, where we open up, and uh, Moses here in Deuteronomy, as we turn here, right, he begins by giving a summary. It's kind of like, this is where we've been, Israel. Remember, this is kind of like Moses' last pouring out his heart to the people of Israel that he has shepherded, that he has taken care of, that he has led through the wilderness by God has led the wilderness through the wilderness through Moses. Um, And so here is Moses, this godly, wise, humble man who loves the people of Israel, pouring out his heart to them to um, remind them of who they are, whose they are and why they exist. And, and, and why they're here. And uh, he opens up here, you know, talks about the leaving Horeb, leaders appointed, their refusal to enter the land, all the prom- problems there. And then eventually we have here in verse uh, 38, um, right, we hear, you know, um, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Because remember, Moses would not be able to cross and go over into the promised land, but rather Joshua would be the one to do this. Here's a small devotion from Spurgeon called No Unnecessary Miracles, and it's rooted in those two words from Deuteronomy 138, encourage him. Spurgeon writes, God employs his people to encourage one another. He did not say to an angel, Gabriel, my servant Joshua is about to lead my people into Canaan. Go, encourage him. God never performs unnecessary miracles. If his purposes can be accomplished by ordinary means, he will not use miraculous agencies. Gabriel would not have been half so well fitted for the work as Moses. A brother's sympathy is more precious than an angel's prestige. The swift-winged angel knew more about the master's desires than he did about the people's needs. An angel had never experienced the difficult journey, nor faced the fiery serpents, nor had he led the stiff-necked multitude in the wilderness as Moses had done. We should be glad that God usually works for man 
by man. This forms a bond of brotherhood, and being mutually dependent on one another, we are united more completely into one family. Brethren, take the text as God's message to you. Work at helping others and especially strive to encourage them. Talk warmly to the young and anxious inquirer. Lovingly try to remove stumbling blocks out of his way. When you find a spark of grace in the heart, kneel down and blow it into a flame. Leave the young believer to discover the roughness of the road by stages, but tell him of the strength that is found in God, of the certainty of the promise, and of the benefits of communion with Christ. Aim to comfort the sorrowful and to encourage the despondent. Speak a fitting word to the weary and lift the spirits of those who are fearful to go on their way with gladness. God encourages you by his promises. Christ encourages you as he points to the heaven he has won for you. And the spirit encourages you as he works in you to will and to do of his own purpose and pleasure. Imitate divine wisdom and encourage others according to the word this evening. So we want to encourage other people, right? That's a good reminder to us. God uses us as instruments in his hand to encourage and to uh, help our brothers and our sisters to be to continue on in the Christian faith. Well, Moses continues going on talking about all that they've experienced. He sees the wilderness years. He talks about um, the great defeat over Sihon and Og. Before eventually in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he now kind of... Um, He kind of starts something a little different. He says this, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. He uh, calls them to be careful as they go into the promised land. He reminds them of the fact that they heard the Lord God speak to them out of fire, out of the midst of fire. He reminds them in verse 15, he says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you, when, yes, you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So he calls them to be careful, to be reminded that the Lord alone is God. And there's this great danger of either turning to a different God or of worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Um, and so Moses here is, is instructing the people here, warning them against this, reminding them of who God is, how he has revealed himself to them through his voice, through the word. He says, you saw no form. This is a section. Uh, it's by Bradley Gray. Um, uh, it's called The Gods We Make Versus the God We Need. So as we think about idolatry, this will help us as we read this passage to consider really what idolatry is and, and the dangers of it, but also um, how to fight against that.
Bradley Gray writes this. The renowned Genevan reformer John Calvin, in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, famously quips that the heart and mind of man is a perpetual forge of idols. That remark has often been translated as an idol factory, one that operates 24-7 with mankind forging idols at will. The products this heart factory churns out are nothing but molten gods, which are supposed to serve as sources of hope, meaning, and significance. It is a sobering portrait of mankind's fallenness, to be sure, one which sees rebellious man acting as both foreman and line worker in an idol factory that never closes its doors. But as staggering as that image is, it did not originate with Calvin during the Reformation. Instead, it is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah who offers such a devastating, albeit inspired, imagery who in a span of 10 verses in the 44th chapter of his oracle proceeds to expose Israel's pathetically idolatrous hearts in one of the sharpest and most sardonic prophetic diatribes in all of scripture. I call the passage in question, the parable of the blacksmith and the carpenter, Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, seeing as the prophet uses such craftsmen to illustrate the vanity, folly, and utter worthlessness of idol worship. Verse 9 serves as his thesis. They that make, let me turn my page, a graven image, he declares, are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. We might render his words, everyone who makes a graven image are worthless forgers, forging worthless things. Notwithstanding how precious these images are, they shall not profit. They're empty, lifeless, inferior imitations of the one true God. And those who worship before them are a company of fools who attest to their own madness by bowing before manufactured deities. Such is Isaiah's estimation of God's chosen people. Despite Jehovah's providential blessings, the Israelites had given themselves over to idol factories, falling prostrate before puny little graven images rather than the kings of Israel than the king of kings. To further articulate the gravity of Israel's shameful idolatry, Isaiah alludes to a blacksmith and a carpenter who, by sheer force of will, make for themselves graven images before whom they fall prostrate in worship. The blacksmith is seen hard at work, exerting every ounce of the strength in his arms in order to craft a god of his own. With tongs and coals and hammers and his own blood, sweat, and tears, he fashions liquid metal into a graven image to suit his fancy. He is drenched in the evidence of his effort. He is covered in the grime of his own glory as he exhausts himself in the endeavor of forging his own delectable thing to serve as his God. In his pride, he sets out to fashion an icon of strength and superiority. Yet as he does so, his strength fails. He faints and falls victim to his own limits. This, I believe, is a token of our creaturely limitations, with every trophy of our craftsmanship bearing the same limits of our finitude. It is the height of foolishness, therefore, to assume that we who are finite can forge something infinite. And yet we are just like this blacksmith, expending untold amounts of energy and effort making molten gods we believe will bring us fulfillment, peace, and purpose. Perhaps our idols are not iron statues sitting in the corners of our homes, but maybe they're the metal devices we carry in our pockets or the green pieces of paper we live for or the rungs of success we incessantly climb. Even still, our efforts are vanity. We still end up hungry and thirsty and weary, and we never learn, do we? As soon as we fashioned an idol god and found it lacking, we set out to fashion another. If this doesn't fill us, that surely will. The assembly line never stops. 
Just as the blacksmith is ultimately never able to forge what he's looking for, so our efforts at fashioning something lasting, something filling, are as good as trying to fill a bucket of water with a sieve. But if that's not enough to stir the heart of Israel back to the right worship of Yahweh, Isaiah offers up another illustration in the form of the carpenter. In this extended metaphor, we are given a detailed account of a woodworker's meticulous care in making a graven image for himself. He is seen measuring and marking and checking every minute detail, planning everything down to the smallest cut. Happy with his design, he ventures out to hew the necessary timber to construct his idol god, and here's where the carpenter's ridiculous logic is fully displayed. Out of his collected beams, he uses some as firewood in order to warm, nourish, and satisfy himself. Then, with the residue, the leftovers, he whittles a god. The point is clear. Same forest, same wood, with some used as kindling and some petition to give his soul deliverance. The elements did not change. In both instances, it is the same lifeless, hopeless hunk of wood which is worshipped. These polemical parables demonstrate the depths of mankind's depravity, delusion, and deception. Rather than find his truest delight in the one true God, the heart of man feeds on ashes. Sin, you see, bamboozles the heart to prefer that which cannot nourish or fulfill. The religion of idol gods is a religion of soot and stupidity. Like the carpenter, our gods are nothing but ash. We fall before them, paying homage to idols that are supposed to bring peace and satisfaction. But ashes cannot be made palatable, let alone profitable. Ash is still just ash, no matter what you want to do with it. And the tragedy is that we are often okay with that. As the ever-trenchant C.S. Lewis asserts in The Weight of Glory, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Ours is a world that is fraught with burning zeal after the divine, but without any of its substance. Having been separated from our Maker, our eternal Provider, by a breach of our own choosing, we still yet thirst and hunger for something eternal, something everlasting. For all of mankind's profundity and reason and logic and intellect, he is no more capable of giving himself or making for himself the meaning he so desperately craves than ashes to provide for nourishment to the parched and hungry. The idols, which man's heart continually fabricates, are shoddy stand-ins for the one true God, residual evidence that we were made by and for someone else's glory. The human mind, Calvin attests in his institutes, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossness of ignorance, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. Nothing we manufacture or manage can offer us the transcendence we so desperately crave. All we can do is create objects that sit in the corner, remain in the house, and collect dust. Like the blacksmith and the carpenter, we are too easily pleased with the gods we make. We are happy with the ash and the mud that we play with and worship. We, it's, we are, it seems, content in our delusion. And yet all the while, the one true God, the Lord Jehovah, has put a better offer on the table. Whereas Lewis likens it to an all-expenses-paid vacation at a house by the sea, Isaiah compares it to the consummate transforming of the desert into an oasis. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, the Lord declares through his prophet, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up as among the grass, 
as willows by the watercourses. Even though Israel is enduring exilic judgment via the oppressive rule of Babylon, they are still his, and he is still theirs. The same God who allows his people to undergo this season of judgment is the same God who assures them of ultimate deliverance and restoration. The one who made them and formed them and chose them is the same one who promises them abundant blessing, chief of which is exemplified in his blotting out of his people's sins. All of Israel's transgressions and tragic idol rebellions would be erased like a wisp of cloud is dissipated in the wind. God's word of promise imbues the Israelites with confidence, assuring them that upon their return, they wouldn't be greeted by some sort of grumpy grouse God. Rather, their return would be preceded by an accomplished redemption. I have redeemed thee, so return unto me. The prophetic word logic runs. And so it is with the rest of God's word, wherein the words of forgiveness forever precede warrants for repentance. The Lord's appeal to his chosen people is therefore an invitation to fall into his open arms. Such is his posture toward us. The posture most natural to him, writes Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly, is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Yes, even for idolatrous sellouts like you and me, God's position has not changed. Even though we may have forgotten him, he never forgets us. He waits with arms wide open for every blacksmith, carpenter, and every idol worshiper of all shapes and sizes to realize their folly and return unto him. He is the only deliverer, the only redeemer, the only God who is actually able to live up to his word, the only one who actually comes through on everything he ever says. He is the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord Jehovah. He is the God with no parallel, no equal. He is before all things and above all things, and by him are all things sustained. And yet, what are his words? Fear not. Isaiah 44, 2 and 8. The one who by rights ought to make yellow bellies of not just Israel, but the entire world says to us, Do not fear. Your trembling, though understandable, is unnecessary. I am your God. It is God's predisposition towards self-disclosure and self-donation that gives defiant Israelites and depraved idol factory workers every reason to return and repent, knowing that when they turn around, they'll be staring into the eyes of their Redeemer, who waits to welcome them home. And so for you and me, as we think about all of this idolatry, as we read Deuteronomy um, right now, remember, we are idolaters at heart. We are those uh, forgers of idols. And yet God calls you and me back home over and over and over again every day, every single day back into his arms to fall into them because of an accomplished redemption that he has already finished for us. So there we have it. Um, we'll wrap up that right now. Um, next week is week 20. Um, so week of May 14th um, all the way through uh, the 20th. So it should be another fun week of reading. So enjoy this. Um, let me know if you ever have any questions about the Bible or about the, the Bible reading. Um, I'd love to help you if, if at all possible. So thank you for listening to this. Take care and God bless.